1: Missing from our understanding of the role of dancers in the context of American cultural diplomacy, Claire Croft's first book, Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange, provides a range of thoughtful, well-researched responses to this question. By exploring the ways in which dancers' bodies were operationalized and deployed on behalf of the U.S. State Department during the Cold War, as well as at the dawn of the 21st century, Dancers as Diplomats centers the work of dancers and choreographers as ambassadors, provocateurs, and global leaders, including more than 70 interviews with dancers who traveled on these international tours. The book centers the voices of artists actively engaged in this very particular kind of cultural work. Claire Croft is a historian, theorist and dramaturg working at the intersection of dance studies and performance studies. She specializes in 20th and 21st century American dance, cultural policy, feminist and queer theory and critical race theory. Professor Croft holds a PhD in theater history and criticism with an emphasis in performance as public practice from the University of Texas Austin and an MA in performance studies from New York University. Dr. Croft is assistant professor of dance in the School of Music, Theater, and Dance at the University of Michigan.
0: On behalf of the New Books Network Dance Channel, I'm really excited that we have an opportunity today to talk to Claire Croft who is author of a phenomenal new book that is really making waves in dance studies. I'm so excited that it's out because I can't wait to have an opportunity to teach it. Today we're going to be talking about your new book, Dancers as Diplomat, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange. So thanks so much for giving us some of your time today, Claire.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh, The first thing that I sort of want to ask is, I know that when you are putting together a project like this, you have to think about who the audience is for this book. So I've really been excited to ask you, you know, who did you have in mind when you were working on the project? And ideally, who is the book for? Well,
2: I've always thought of the book very much as a project centered on dance and in the dance community. Um, I certainly wrote it for other dance scholars, but also hoped that it might have a slightly broader reach into the dance community at large. It was really important to me as I thought about the book to try to think about what it means to tell dance history in a way that really includes the experiences and perspectives of dancers themselves. So not just choreographers. Um, So given that that was a real push in the book, i I do hope that people in dance, both within academia and outside of academia, will read it and then I think sort of the secondary audience is people who are interested in thinking about gender and sexuality and race and how these identity um positions and politics and actions become part of what happens when people dance so um I certainly hope that the book has pretty broad reach. Um, and also, just in terms of, there's been a lot of interest in cultural diplomacy, which is when the government funds art and artists to travel abroad to represent the, um, the U.S. in the case of my work, And so, I certainly hoped that people interested in cultural diplomacy, whether it be cultural diplomacy from the U.S. or from other parts of the world where there's actually much more funding for cultural diplomacy, um, that the book sort of is able to participate in that conversation too. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate about the book is the way in which you center and situate the voices of dancers, not just, you know, choreographers or dance makers. That's actually, you know, if I think about some of the critiques that come forward in the context of dance studies is spending too much time, on, you know, sort of probing the work and theories of choreographers and not the people who went forward and embodied the work. And so Mm -hmm. I really appreciate your project because for people who are thinking about engaging similar projects, you know, I feel like your book is really going to be a useful model to them, you know, in that regard, as it relates to actively amplifying the voices of dancers and not just choreographers.
2: Yeah, it's funny to me as someone who did dance but was never terribly interested in making work, that when we think about like the vast amount of labor that dancers do, um, that we don't spend more time thinking about them in dance history. And of course, we do have the sort of iconic stories, the stories of the stars, um, you know, people who like reach a high enough level of celebrity that they write their memoirs or something. Um, but, you know, I was really interested in the book in talking to the people who never get named, but spend tremendous amounts of time on stage and think about sort of how their work comes together to create ensembles and cores and, you know, all of the the collective force that we know is actually like a huge part of labor force in dance. I don't know. When I was in grad school at NYU, Fred Moten at some point said to us, um, what I found to be a really wise comment was to always look around and see who is actually doing the work in any given room. And in dance, um, it's certainly dancers as well as choreographers doing that work. So how to to center the labor that sometimes gets overlooked was really important to me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, given those commitments and your own interests as, you know, historian, theorist, dramaturg, as someone who teaches, as someone who does a great deal of collaborative work, um, thinking and making with other artists, I mean, I've known you for a little while and I feel safe enough to say, you know, you could have written lots of other projects. There are lots of other ideas that, you know, just in casual conversation with you, I know you could have centered, you know, for a text. So I'm wondering, what does the book mean for you personally, you know, at this point in your career? Um,
2: I mean, in some ways, I have answer to answer that question as to kind of why I think this project hooked me and stayed with me. Um It very much grew out of the fact I moved to New York, uh, I think, five days before 9-11 in 2001 and felt really jarred, obviously, by many things, but in particular about what it meant that I wanted to be this performance studies, dance studies scholar at a moment where (laughs) it kind of felt like the world was falling apart. Um, And... I mean, obviously, I speak from a place of privilege that, like, it was September 2001, and I was, you know, in my 20s and just then found out the world was falling apart. Obviously, lots of people, that's their daily existence. But, you know, for me, it was a really jarring moment and trying to figure out, like, well, what does it mean to do dance scholarship? Like, maybe I should quit all of this and go to law school or do some other kind of work. And so... um You know, the project really grew, I think, from me trying to think through, is there some reason to study dance in the midst of global crisis and violence? Um, And, you know, certainly there are other projects maybe that, you know, take that out in a more head on way. I don't want to. Like, try to elevate academic writing to some place that it's not. But, um, but yeah, I got really interested in, well, what happens when dance travels around the world and how does it travel? Especially because we sort of get fed this line that dance is universal, which I mm-hmm. always joke with my students like, yeah, if you go to the Middle East and like do a thumbs up, and that means, you know, horrible things there, but you think you're saying, like, a okay or something, you quickly realize in travel that the body is not a universal conveyor of meaning and that gestures have all of these contexts. And so... You know, trying to think about how bodies travel and how they accrue knowledge and and this notion of like representation and how it falls on the body and and what we do with it as as people with bodies, like somebody says like you're representing America right now, like what does that really mean? I mean, we say it all the time, we hear it every year, you know that the Olympics roll around or whatever um but to kind of get at some of these like common things that people say about. Universal la- dance is a universal language and oh you're representing this nation um, those are fascinating questions to really drill down I think to the level of the individual traveling on tour and to the level of the piece you know showing up on the concert stage that people are like this is America and and you know it's one slice of it, and it's morphing every single night that dancers take stage. So how those representations are never very stable, it was really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about um, some of the conversations that I've had with folks in the field, even about the notion of historical reconstruction of, you know, sort of classic masterworks of choreography and thinking about how, in some ways, every time you do it after that first time, it's always being reconstructed. You know, it's always being reconstituted through, you know, bodies moving in space and whatever that context is at any given time, and really trying to get students to think through the challenges of representation and all of the implications of what that might mean in performance. I think it's a really rich set of questions that the book, you know, definitely um, contributes to that ongoing conversation in the field.
2: It's funny when I taught a history class for the first time and, you know, the convention of sort of whatever piece I'm talking about, you know, in parentheses after it, I put like Revelations 1962 or whatever. And then like saying, well, actually, like, that's kind of a weird thing that I've said it happens in that year, because, of course, you know, Revelations has probably been performed more than any other concert work in, you know, American dance at writ large almost, and you know and the and and it because it's so widely popular, we've seen it change and morph over the years with different directors, different dancers, different tempos and the music, and all these kinds of things, so it it's always sort of strange that we have this convention of sort of marking where something came from. that said, like I do <laughs> believe strongly in thinking about like the moment in which it was initially created, but also this question of um you know that. I feel like as a dramaturg, I think a lot about that my um, colleague, Kelly Howe, always talks about when she goes about directing a play is why this play now? And so how do we how do we get it works as they live in the moment of performance and in the moment of creation? And how are those two things in dialogue or even in productive friction with one another is endlessly fascinating to me. And I think dancers are one of the best access points for those kinds of questions. So, yeah, time in history is just fascinating, and the way different moments live side by
0: side on stage
2: is, um, I don't know, one of the great gifts of performance history, I think, the history at large.
0: Yeah, I'd have to agree. I mean, it even makes you think about we will mark when a work, you know, premieres or has, you know, its first sort of public showing, but even the time and years that predate the showing of the work. You know, Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, even in terms of the book, it's like, the book is here now, and it's been published, and it's fantastic. But I know that these ideas, and I would even say preoccupations, gestated for a long time,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, and
0: (laughs) at various points in your own, you know, development as a artist, thinker, scholar, person. And so now we have this product, this thing that has had a premiere, but certainly, you know, even situating the book in time raises the kinds of questions that you're asking with the project. I I find that really exciting.
2: Yeah, it's crazy how long books take to write. I worked as a journalist before I went back to graduate school, and, you know, I reviewed Often four things a week and I walked out of the theater at 10 and what I thought about them was, you know, showed up on people's kitchen tables less than 48 hours later. And to think about what kind of record that creates for history versus this incredibly slow, laborious process that is writing a book and sort of, but like how amazing it is as academics that we get to come back to ideas and hone them and chew on them over time and think about all the possible ways they could live in the world into Mm -hmm. um, a real gift of this work.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Given that let's share with the listeners a little bit. Um, What do you think are some of the distinguishing features of the book? You know, what are certain aspects of the text that make it special to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've hit on a big one, this sort of what does it mean to center dancers in dance history? Uh, I interviewed over 70 dancers who have been on tours both in the early decades of the Cold War and in the now 15 years since um, the U.S. State Department has started supporting international dance tours again. So the voices of dancers, the interview material, which isn't published elsewhere, for the most part, there's a couple of people who were interviewed who've also written their autobiographies, um, certainly is is a real core piece of the book. And and an extent of that is that um, the very notion that dance history lives in verbal exchange, um, you know, Dance often gets talked about as a nonverbal art form, which is certainly, uh, uh, you know, a, a primary characteristic of many dance forms and genres, this attention to the body. But um, especially growing up in dance, you know, my like first dance history teachers were these amazing ballet teachers that I was around in high school in Alabama who would tell these great stories about, you know, the time they appeared with Nureyev in Chicago or what it was like to dance in Paris during World War II. And, you know, I got hooked on dance history while I was like putting on point shoes in a dance studio. And so how these like storytelling practices are very much part of how we learned our history as dancers and also um, these verbal exchanges that happen around how you learn to dance. You know, like, yeah, it's watching bodies, but it's also the conversations you have and the the little stories that get told around that. So I'm interested in, in dance as a storytelling tradition, and that was a lot of why I did so many interviews, most of them one-on-one, but also in some of the later chapters, uh, it worked better to do some group interviews, which in some ways did recreate that kind of playful exchange that is the way that dancers talk in all kinds of dance spaces, whether they be studios or you know, movie- or more socially oriented um, dance forms. And then I think the, the final characteristic was uh, the book was... Initially, one I conceived as being about the Cold War. But mm-hmm. as I was finishing the dissertation, it became clear that this U.S. State Department funding was not only back, that it was going to be around for a while in the form of Dance Motion USA, which is the program on which the last two chapters of the book center. And so I think the fact that it is a book that crosses multiple time periods, um, is really important and also as it tries to kind of ask these questions about because, particularly the early decades of the Cold War, so, you know, immediately following post-World War II is this period of American history that we really seized upon because of, um, you know, an ascendance of American military and economic and political power and how I think we have to work really hard to resist Turning to that period to shape the way we think about the present. And so it, moving from the early decades of the Cold War to the post 9-11 material helped me think about how these structures of seeing that came out of the Cold War, this very us versus them, US versus Soviet. Notions are ones that I think people are trying to grab onto today that are really limiting how we understand the U.S.'s place in the world and also um, how we continue to cling to American exceptionalism, despite many, um, many things around us telling us that the U.S. is, in fact, you know, certainly not maybe as powerful as it was, but, you know, questioning sort of the narrative of the U.S. as some sort of beacon of hope and promise, um, which I think is something the book really tries to undermine. Um, You know, why is it that we cling so tightly to American exceptionalism? So I think so. the attention to dancers, thinking about interviews, and moving between a Cold War periodization and the more contemporary work, I think are the three main distinguishing features.
0: Um, I appreciate you for sharing that. It makes me think of, particularly when you talk about um, the storytelling that happens around the way that we learn and experience dance. Um, I'm like you. I fell in in love with dance history in the studio, you know, listening to people talk and share stories about their teachers and experiences that they had. Um, But it also makes me think about the ways in which, you know, in dance, Um, our particular kind of obsession with lineage. Mm. So, you know, it's like, how many times have I met someone in the field and the first three minutes is about who you trained with, who you studied with, who taught you, where you were, not in a negative way necessarily, Mm -hmm. but those stories even of where we come from and Mm -hmm. situating ourselves within the larger conversation that are so fundamental to, I think, certainly how dancers in the field consider themselves, but even those of us who do dance scholarship, it's the same thing. You know, where'd you go to school? Who'd you train with? Who chairs your dissertation? Whatever. You know, but that happens so much within the first two seconds of meeting someone. And yet Mm -hmm. we don't always focus on the value of that storytelling, that narrativizing process that happens in our exchanges.
2: Yeah, and I'm curious about how this, that storytelling practices of who we are and where we come from are gonna are changing and shifting in part because storytelling takes time. And, you know, as we prize sound bites and 140 word descriptions of who we are, you know, how do we make room for the stories that need a little more time to really unfold um, and which is also, I mean, moving from writing, you know, primarily in a journalism format where, you know, I wrote things as short as 250 words into a book. I mean, you know, there are questions about what's going to happen to books as the 21st century unfolds. And, you know, I just, I'm I'm pretty enraptured with a book as a place that lets you, like, really take the time to see how a story unfolds um you know i couldn't have written this on twitter i mean i guess i could have but it would have seemed really different
0: yeah so, I mean, yeah I, I love the, the
2: stories you, of where people came from
0: yeah i mean the way you invoke that valuing of time that happens with the book there's even something about that to me that um feels <sighs> sensual um deeply satisfying in a way you know, when I when I've read a wonderful work, whether it's you know a popular work or a scholarly text, um, when it's well constructed, it's satisfying in the end. It can be refreshing. It can, you know, it it the journey through a book is is different than the journey through, I don't know, a Tumblr page or something <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I like that. You know, no hate to Tumblr, but. It is interesting to think about, you know, what those mediums do to the narratives that we're trying to tell. What are the implications of using different mediums for the stories that we want to tell? Um, I wanted to cycle back to something you mentioned earlier, you know, talking about how you situate dance within the larger discussion of Cold War politics. That was one of the things that I was very excited about, you know, in terms of teaching the book. Or teaching sections of the books. You know, I work with undergraduates and I'm always trying to get them to situate the histories of choreographers and dancers that they love within this larger kind of cultural moment. So, you know, I want to ask you shared a little bit about your experience around 9 11, but I don't know a lot of people who are doing Cold War era history and thinking about dance in the way that you do in the text. So I'm asking, you know, how does. Situating dance within that larger discussion of cult war politics deepen our understanding of the period or deepen our understanding of the intersection of politics and performance?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was just, Dr. Hannah Kostran just brought me to Ohio State to talk with their students about the book. And um, it was an exciting conversation uh, in part because it, I asked the students if they'd seen the movie White Nights, and most had not. And I think about White Nights as this like super formative dance geek moment for me. Um, you know, it's the story of like the defector, and the plane goes down, and now he's stuck in. The Soviet Union, and they're not going to let him back out. And for reasons that are somewhat inexplicable, they go get Gregory Hines, who's defected to the Soviet Union, and like trap Gregory Hines and Barishnikov in this ballet school together. And mm-hmm. um, and like the movie is actually quite ridiculous as I watch it now. But the fact that I think you know it didn't get great reviews in 1985, but it certainly captured many ballet nerds like me and. You know, in part, like the the story of dance and the story of the Cold War were so intertwined in this kind of mundane way, um uh, because the Soviet Union was so associated with ballet, and the u s is kind of trying to make claims to it, which is what the you know chapter one of the book is about, but also how you know the Cold War made these ballet dancers stories um both everyday and heroic, so and I'm mainly thinking of the you know the big defections, Nuriev, Makeharva and then Brushnikov. um so you know and i i think i'm I'm intrigued about the Cold War as this moment when dance was truly like interwoven with politics, even if you weren't necessarily a dance you know aficionado or fan. Because I feel like often in dance studies, we get stuck trying to like make an argument for people to pay attention to dance and be like, oh, dance is special. You know, sometimes it almost sounds like we're saying it has like special powers, which I mean, if pressed, I would admit that I do, in fact, think dance is magic. But I don't know if that's like the best argument for um, why everyone should study it. (laughs) But um, but something about like this Period in American history where dance was actually something that people thought about. You know, I mean, these US State Department tours weren't huge, but, you know, by today's standards, it was an incredible amount of funding for companies. I really don't think we would have some of the big names in the 20th century American dance canon without these tours. You know, Ailey. The Ailey Company in part because Alvin Ailey himself was very strategic in how he moved um among really difficult circumstances with State Department officials. But, you know, these tours were really important for that company to come into existence. You know, City Ballet in sixty two gets eight weeks of funding for rehearsals prior to leaving on tour. I mean, and in part of why I wanna highlight things like that is like that's the model of public arts funding that I want. Like the notion that we'd actually support people to make their art in addition to presenting it. Um, it's, you know, it's an extraordinary story that dance boom happened because there was public and nonprofit funding for dance, like support really matters. So that's an incredibly important piece of the Cold War story to me that we believed in public funding then.
0: I think what I really appreciate you about about you invoking that history is, you know, so often with my students, when they think about people like Ailey or they think about, you know, City Ballet or even Graham, um, they imagine these people as being 300 feet tall. Mm-hmm. These people are 300 feet tall. They're very, very special. They're always, you know, churning out work, um, through their own unique brilliance and nothing else, <laughs> you know, yep. uh, they don't, and it's hard for them to think about I mean, even getting my students to think critically about the nature of collaboration and how people work together in ways that are seen and unseen. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about collaboration and influences, but also really getting them to think about the money, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes we can think so much about, the magic that we don't think about the money and how resources shaped not only the companies that we, um, in some ways grew to know and love and celebrate, but perpetuated kind of a global, um, picture at various points about art in the United States and that, regardless of, you know, what you might think about any particular company, choreographer, or work, we need to be looking at public funding models for the arts if we want to have artists who um, get to work and develop to that scale ever again.
2: Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, these companies had support. I mean, you know, not everyone who needed support got it. And that's sort of part of the story of Catherine Dunham in the book, who, you know, was very much ostracized by these programs in part because of her politics. So, you know, not that that these things come without strings attached, but also like what money doesn't come with strings attached. I'd much rather um, see arts funding happening through public veins, which are more likely to not necessarily be moved by, um, you know, hegemonic forces that don't support public good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it's, I think, and also in how we study dance history, um, I mean, this book, in part, was shaped by Linda Tomko has an essay in the Teaching Dance Studies Edited volume, and there's just one sentence where she says, like, you know, we should be paying more attention in dance history to the finances of cultural institutions. And I remember reading that and thinking, like, oh, it, yeah, that's really smart. And in part <laughs> because I'd worked as a journalist, had a great editor at the Washington Post, who every time I turned in a feature, his question was always, like, did you follow the money? Did you figure out who is paying for whatever you're writing about? And that's also kind of similar to Fred Moten's like, pay attention to who's doing the work in the room. I feel like this question of like, who paid for this thing that we're all at is a really good one to ask and reveals lots of hidden
0: costs
2: and uh, contracts. So yeah. It
0: it also just makes me think about um, when we, if we do, you know, seriously, not only really we get to situate these works of artists historically, but follow the money, that also has implications for thinking about notions of archives, you know, mm-hmm. whose, work, whose work gets preserved, whose um, papers are processed, you know, what becomes the grand narrative of dance studies, of dance history, and what gets Sort of relegated to the background to the sidelines to the margins and what are the implications of that for you know our students and their learning i mean those are the kinds of questions that whenever i'm teaching a dance history course which is you know just about every single semester that's what i keep going back to you know these questions about whose narratives are in the conversation and what gets relegated to the market and how a lot of that has to do with what's been preserved, and how what's been preserved has to do with money. So along those lines, I want to ask, I know there had to be challenges in developing the book. There always are. Um, what were a couple of the significant challenges you faced in developing the project and what did you do to make it so that now we have this very important book?
2: Um, well, in some ways, my to sort of stay with the theme of archives, one of the challenges I had was actually how to deal with the incredibly large volume of archives around cultural diplomacy. Um, the meetings in which artists were selected for inclusion or for not being included on the tours... There are these incredibly detailed minutes of them uh, from 54 when when the programs that I work on begin up through the 70s when they kind of morph and transform in some ways. And um, there was just so much material. And when I started this project, I had no idea even how to make my way through it. So um, I was lucky to stumble into this incredibly rich archive. And I say that in part because I hope more people will work on these tours. Um, I feel like I, you know, hit maybe not a tiny slice, but like one slice. There's so much more, I think, thinking to be done around the institutional politics and how power worked out. Um, And how it played out at really minute levels, which is also a question, like, how do you deal with these one-to-one conversations, you know, whatever, Lucia Chase from ABT talking with Lincoln Kirstein and figuring something out. How do you deal with that as both um, a small conversation and also like these windows into how gatekeeping works? And I feel like um, this question of how gatekeepers function and how they retain power is one I'm always really interested in. And, you know, one example is exactly what you bring up, like who's, whose work we decide to save and whose work we decide is not of enough value to put the resources behind it to to take care of it. Um, so how to deal with all of that in the archive and these, these huge gatekeepers who made all the choices, um, how to attend to what they were up to and try to track that over time was, I don't know if it was a challenge, but it was a pretty fascinating curiosity that gripped me for many years. And then, you know, other challenges were in part how to find all these dancers, um, I felt like I spent a couple of years just like being some sort of detective and constantly saying like, so I've got this picture from 1962 and it's got the full cast of Serenade in it, which is the George Balanchine's piece that opened every performance in um, in the Soviet or most of the performances that the company did in the Soviet Union and like trying to find some of these people who were, you know, in the company for a year, maybe two years, and then like went on to some other life and they felt like the really important people to track down, to round out the narrative. And they were, in fact, often really amazing and the people who were willing to talk the most. And then on the flip side, um, coming to these recent tours, there was a real challenge as I started. I had done most of the interviews for the older tours, the Cold War work, and talking to people about um about being on these tours and knowing that these companies would very much like to have that funding again. And so I think trying to pay attention to what wasn't being said and being sensitive to why it might not be said and Um, You know, all the spaces and absences in conversations and interviews remain really interesting to me what it means both for one's research methods, like how do you do an interview and attend to what's not there, Um, what's ghosting the interview, and then also as you sort of move into writing, how do you talk about what you
0: didn't hear?
2: and um you know, and the book ends with the most extreme example of that, which is me doing an interview with three women from the Korean National Contemporary Dance Company who were touring with the Trey McIntyre project and um in a horrible ethnographic move on my part, I basically wound up with no translator and 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 sort of had the interviews translated to them ahead of time or the questions rather, and this bizarre scene of sitting around a table with people talking to me in a language I didn't know um, which is horrible but also I was so fascinated and I write about this in how we were like kind of using our bodies to pretend as though we were communicating and we didn't understand anything like I didn't know what they were saying they knew I didn't understand what they were saying and yet we're trying to like pretend and kind of nod and smile in this um, highlighting of how miscommunication is just as much part of how cultural exchange works as it is communication. And these, these, you know, there's a lot of talk of like, oh, finding similarities and overlaps. And I think that very much happens. But, you know, how do you pay attention to difference and absence is just as important.
0: Claire, what's been the biggest surprise for you in terms of how people are receiving or responding to the work? I mean, when I hear you talk about um, the kind of commitment you had in bringing the project forward and even revealing within the body of the text some of the challenges that you faced in, you know, giving birth to the project, what has been a surprise for you in terms of the critical and popular response to the work?
2: I mean, it still feels pretty newly out. I joke with people that I'm amazed <laughs> that people are reading it. Um, you know, in dance, we don't really produce objects. So it's funny to have produced this object. Um Prize? I don't know. There hasn't been necessarily one yet. I think I'm maybe moved and also surprised by some of the people I've heard from who say that they have had trouble reading yeah. other academic texts and something about the way the book is written has allowed them to really engage with scholarship for the first time. Um, a student last week at Ohio State said to me, um, and I won't reveal who he was, but um, he said, you know, I've been in grad school for seven weeks and this is the first piece of reading I've understood, which, I mean, we could we could maybe like talk about whether that means something about him or about the book. Um, but he was like so excited to have something, I think, written for an audience, maybe. Um, It's really important to me to write clearly. I loved writing for daily newspapers and thinking about talking about dance, not just to the people who I know will slog through my worst writing, which so many of them did in helping me with drafts of the book. Um, But, you know, how to make reading about dance a really enticing pleasure for people who aren't necessarily going to gravitate towards a dance book. So I don't know if it's a surprise or if it's something I want, but um, I'm excited that people who don't necessarily read lots of dance books seem to be responding well to it.
0: Well, Clitter, I want you to know that I love your object. It's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And I really appreciate you for taking the time to come and share a little bit with our listeners. What's next for you? Do you have any projects on tap that might be of interest to our listeners? What are you working on?
2: Yeah, the big thing, hopefully, on the near horizon is a project I've been working on for a couple of years now called Meanings and Makings of Queer Dance. Um, Hopefully, it'll be out in 2017, also from Oxford. Um, And it is a book that is a collection of 15 essays, half written by artists, half written by uh, historians and ethnographers. So a range of kinds of writing, manifestos, poems, personal essays, and also more kind of usual academic work, thinking about what is queer dance and not so much towards defining queer dance, but how queer dance might be a challenge or an aspiration for the dance community as we think about non-normative ways of being in the world, particularly as they relate to gender and sexuality. And I think the really exciting thing about the the book is that it'll have a complimentary website that will include interviews I've done and filmed with all of the artists featured in the book, and also um, these beautiful HD films of eight different performances that are featured in the book as well, so work by uh, a number of contemporary artists, so that hopefully when people read the book, they can listen to the interviews, or really watch the interviews, and also watch the performances, which I'm hoping will make it easier to teach some of this um, contemporary queer work in the classroom.
0: It sounds fascinating, and please know that here at the New Books Network, we are happily anticipating your project as soon as that thing is hot off the presses please let me know because i would love to have you back and support you in any way with promoting your next project
2: thank you so much for having me it's always such a rich pleasure to be in conversation with you me you know
0: I, I I have to be honest with our listeners about how much I enjoy, you know, spending time with you. And one of the great things about the book was um, it felt like spending time with you in a different way. Um, the clarity and crispness of your ideas um, remind me of what it's like to share intellectual space with you in real time. And so I really want to encourage our listeners to get their hands on the work because it will be a rare treat for them to have an opportunity to meet you through the pages of Dancers as Diplomat, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange. So again, Claire Croft, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
2: Thank you.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Claire Croft, author of Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange, published by Oxford University Press. The book is available now at local booksellers and online retailers. I'm Takiyah Noorameen, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the New Books Network Dance Channel. Thanks for listening, and keep on reading.